Hello again, everybody. Life Skodnik back with you at the Lowhud Sports Newsroom Information Closet, where we're recording this podcast alongside Vincent Z. Mercogliano. And uh, Vince, um, it's finally baseball season. It doesn't feel like it outside. It's about 43 degrees and raining today on uh, Masters Thursday, the 6th of April. But that said, it is baseball season. Finally, there have been a few games played, but let's start out by uh, a big event that uh, you really uh, took the lead in organizing earlier this season, the Lowhide Pitch Count Panel. As we know, the National Federation of High School Associations has promulgated that every state uh, that plays baseball, which is all of them because this is the United States, of course, uh, has to have rules limiting the uh, the number of pitches high school pitchers can throw and how much rest they need to get after throwing certain numbers of pitches. And so New York uh, put together rules this year that the NY, uh, NYSPHSAA has instituted. Um, and so you had a panel together. We had Rick Peterson, the former pitching coach for the A's, the Brewers, and the Mets. Uh, Stephen Nicholas, a local orthopedic surgeon who's actually a nationally known orthopedic surgeon. Uh, current scout Brian Avalos, whose son uh, Robbie pitched at Suffern and uh, is, is pitching now uh, as a professional. Local coach Darren Gurney, who coaches at KO, and Section 1 co-chairman uh, Chris McCarthy. Uh, let, let's talk a little bit just to start. The pitch count rules are a first step, but they are certainly not the last step, and nor are they, you know, really the end product. Yeah, and I thought you hit on that really well in the, in the column that you wrote that ran, I believe, in Saturday's paper. And I think, you know, having the panel in the room was great because each guy brought a different perspective. You know, Peterson talked a lot about how these things are managed at the professional level, and obviously they are very, very careful with their pitchers at that level because, as he said, that's the most expensive commodity, not just in baseball, but in all of sports. So so they're very cautious about keeping their pitchers healthy. And, and he had some pretty stern words and reminders for, you know, guys that are coaching at the lower levels about why he feels it's important for them to protect these arms. Then I thought Dr. Nicholas did a, a great job of really outlining the increases that he's seen in the rate of injury and why he thinks we're seeing that. I know he really stressed specialization in his mind might be the biggest issue when you're overtraining only to, to perform in one singular sport all year long that puts unnecessary stress on your tendons and ligaments and you're not training the other parts of the body that you might not really use as much in a baseball setting. So I thought Dr. Nicholas was great in that regard. And then, you know, McCarthy and Gurney were able to speak McCarthy from the perspective of an administrator who, you know, was a realist about what it takes behind the scenes to deal with this sort of thing. When you're, when you're implementing changes that are, are going to affect, I believe he said, over 350 schools in the state of New York alone, to get everybody on the same page is not as easy as, as it might sound or you might think. And I think Chris did a really good job of stressing that. Darren talked a lot about you know, strategically as a coach, what it's going to take now for, for coaches to really, you know, use these rules in the right way and make sure that they have enough guys on their staff ready to perform now that there are these limitations in place. And Brian, you know, Avalis really, really hit home when he talked about what he went through with Robbie, potentially losing a million dollars because of that injury that Robbie sustained in his final high school game, which was the week of the draft. I mean, that's pretty heartbreaking and that's a pretty crazy situation that they went through. But I think the big takeaways were, and I know that Chris McCarthy stressed that, that the people in New York State were listening and they're paying attention to what we're talking about, which is why he thinks it's important to keep this conversation going, is that you know the most obvious thing is the, is, is the night's rest. 
As it is right now, it says four nights of rest, but we know that really means three days of rest, which goes against standard practices. You'd never see a big league guy do that unless it was like a World Series game or something crazy. So there's no way to come up with an excuse or reason for why we should be allowing high school pitchers to do that. So that, that I think, is the most obvious thing, and, and you wrote that in your column, is that they need to change it from three days of rest when you throw the maximum amount of pitches, which in New York State is 105, change that to where you're requiring them to have four days of rest. I, I'm pretty confident that that's going to happen. I think by the time next season starts, the season of 2018, you will see that change made. A couple other things that, that I'd like to note here that I think came out of this panel discussion, both Peterson and Dr. Nicholas really seem to you know, jump up and, and wave a red flag about the postseason escalation. You know, now in New York State, once you get to the playoffs, you're allowed to jump up to 125 pitches in a single game. And those guys really took an issue with that. So I think that that's something that they'll consider. You know, maybe if you want to have an escalation, maybe make it 10 pitches, put it up to 115 instead of 125. That might be a suggestion they might think about. And the other thing that McCarthy brought up, which I think is a really, really important point to make here, is that when a pitcher leaves the mound, it doesn't mean that he's no longer at risk. So what McCarthy is advocating for, which is what they do in the college game, is that you implement a rule that says, if a pitcher is your best athlete or one of your best hitters, which oftentimes at the high school level it is, when you take him out of the game as a pitcher, you shouldn't have to put him at a field position then to keep his bat in the lineup. You should be able to keep the bat in the lineup without requiring him to go to a field position that will then require him to do even more throwing, whether it's shortstop, third base, somewhere in the outfield where you're going to have to be making really long throws. And I've even seen guys go and play catcher after they come out of the game from pitching. And, and that's just as much throwing as a pitcher is doing. So I thought McCarthy really hit the nail on the head with that. And I know that that's something he's going to be pushing for at, at the state level. And, and I guess the last thing we can talk about here, and Dr. Nicholas really stressed this, is you could potentially have a varsity pitcher who's 14 years old, who's a freshman, maybe even in middle school, who the same rules apply for as a junior or a senior. Now we know science tells us that the physical maturity of a kid who's 13, 14, 15 years old is not the same as a kid who's 16 or 17. So I know Dr. Nicholas really stressed that he would like to see them uh, change the rules from saying which level you're pitching at, varsity, junior, varsity modified, and change that to, to an age range, which I think most people would feel is more appropriate. Right. And one of the things that I took away from it, you know, I was talking before the panel started with Rick Peterson, who, you know, I, I remember from when he was the pitching coach for the Trenton Thunder back in the 1990s. And I said, you know, Rick, it's almost abusive when pitch, you know, high school pitchers throw these many, this many pitches and then get trotted out. He said, you know, it's not almost abusive. It is abusive because, you know, you really need, and, and like he said, you really need to look in the mirror if, if you're okay with sending a kid back out there and you don't care if he gets injured or not because winning's more important. You know, the reality is in professional baseball, they're doing everything they can to protect the pitcher's arms because, like Peterson said and like you talked about, it's the most valuable commodity in pro professional sports. There just aren't that many people that can grip a, a, a nine ounce or a, a five ounce nine inch baseball and throw it in the mid-90s. They, they just don't exist. If they were walking down the street, major league pitchers would make the same as, you know, middle managers in corporate America, but they don't exist. So, you know, in the professional game, they protect the, pitcher, the pitcher's arms, and we need to do the same thing in high school. 
Yeah, and as you wrote in your column, you know, obviously <laughs> the vast majority of guys that are playing in high school aren't going to play professional ball. We know what a minute fraction of a number that is. I mean, is. 4%, 4% of high school athletes go on to play in college in any division at all, ever. 4%. So that's 4 in 100, which with 15 guys on, or so on the average high school baseball team means four guys out of every eight teams you see will play college baseball somewhere at some level. And then how many of those guys are going pro? It's probably it's a fraction of a percent, obviously. So we're, we're not trying to make the point that, that we should protect these guys so they have the opportunity to, to play professionally. The guys that do have that opportunity, obviously you should be even more careful with in, in some respects. But you only have a short window to play high school baseball. You know, for most guys, you know, you're not going to make a varsity team until you're a junior. So you want to cherish those years. You want to make sure you're healthy and you want to make sure that you're doing it the right way. And obviously, uh, another big point that came out of this, and there were so many layers to this discussion, so many different topics that we hit on. But the issues do go way beyond pitch count. We, we fixate on that because, you know, these new rules are out there and they're hard numbers that you can look at. And, and it's really easy to monitor that. But mechanics, how you're recovering, rest periods, not playing on multiple teams, which is a big, big issue. A lot of guys go right out of the high school season into summer ball, into fall ball, into showcases. And we know that the more that you do that, the more at risk you are. So I would encourage everybody to read your column. I would encourage everybody to go on to loha.com and watch the video if you didn't get a chance to see it. I know that night over 12,000 people watched it, which is pretty awesome. We're, we're glad that we're hopefully going to have a little bit of an impact on, on what's going to happen moving forward. And just be smart about what we're doing. The information is out there. People like Peterson and Dr. Nicholas and Chris McCarthy and all these guys that we had on the panel, you know, these are great guys that know what they're talking about. And we should really listen when they're giving us their expert advice on these type of issues. All right. Well, let's move on to the preseason nine who shine your uh, preseason all star picks. A um, lot of obvious choices last year. This year. Not quite as much. Uh, I remember we sat down and we talked a little bit about how uh, you had some difficulty with the selection process. Who were the guys that you knew had to be on the list? And then what went into kind of rounding it out? Yeah, so, you know, last year, and this is not a knock on the guys that are playing this year, because I do think there's a lot of depth. And as I wrote in my column on Friday, I, I believe that because we don't have these standout guys like we did last year, I mean, there's some of them, but there's just not the, the quantity that we had last year, that there's going to be a lot of guys whose names we might not know today, but within the next few weeks, by the end of the season, within the Section 1 community, within the local baseball community, will become pretty well-known names. But, I mean, last year, you had four guys taken in the Major League Baseball draft from Section 1 alone right out of high school. That, that's something that might never happen again. So the 2016 senior class was was phenomenal. There were some you know big names like George Kirby, Frankie Vesuvio, James Riley, Jeffrey Parra. We could go down the list. Jeffrey Parra wasn't even on our nine list last year, which shows you how much you know I know what I'm talking about. But... It, uh, the point is that, that last year there, there was a lot. It was a top-heavy class. So this year when it came to me breaking it down, the first guy that I knew had to be on there was Brandon Neek from Horace Greeley. Now, this is a left-hander who last year as a sophomore was already getting to 90, 91 miles per hour. I was told at off-season showcases he's bumping up now to 93, maybe even touching 94. And, you know, I look at all this Baseball America mock draft and, and you know, prospect list and all this kind of stuff, and if you look at the 2018 draft, Neek is a guy that's showing up as potentially a first or second round pick in the Major League Baseball draft next year. So this is a kid that I knew how to be on there. But beyond him, 
you know, there was a few names that, that I knew right away I was going to put on there. Uh, Enzo Stefan Stefanono from uh, Rye Country Day. He's a guy that has flown under the radar, but I mean, if even through two starts this year, he's got two wins and 24 strikeouts already. He's had a tremendous high school career. He's really carried that Rye Country Day team for the last four years, really. And now he's up to 36 no, I'm sorry, 34, 34 wins. Yeah. yeah, 34 wins, which puts him six away from the New York State record at 40. He needed eight at the beginning of the season to get there. Eight is the number that he had last year. So it's within the realm of possibility that Enzo could get to that New York State record. So for that reason, I felt like he had to be on there. Anthony Piccolino from Iona Prep. You know, he was maybe a little overshadowed last year by Joe LaSorsa, who's now doing great, uh, you know, pitching for St. John's and was our player of the year last year. But Anthony outstanding pitcher his era was like a one flat he, a he averaged more than a strikeout per inning he's hands down one of the best pitchers in the catholic league which is about as competitive as it is around here so those three i had a pretty good idea about but beyond that i mean then i had a list and a lot of you saw the list online of like a hundred other names that i was considering and as i emailed coaches as i talked to college scouts and professional scouts and as i went over the statistics from last year i looked at the all state list from last year i looked at the all section list from last year there were just so many guys that for one reason or another you could make a case for i'll, I'll give you a perfect example Henry Davis from Fox Lane. This is a kid that's committed to Louisville. Now, nobody else in this area is Louisville, but I believe is the, the number one school in the country right now for baseball. Nobody else in this area can match that. Obviously, the scouts and the college coaches see a lot of potential in him. He's got great pop time. He's got a really strong arm. I know he throws over 90 from the outfield at some of these showcases that he's been to. So he was a guy that for that reason I felt like belonged on there, even though if you look at his high school production last year as a sophomore, it might not match up with some of the other guys. On the other hand, if we're talking about high school production, a guy like Truman DeVitt from Amarinick, he's definitely not wowing any scouts. I mean, this is a kid that's probably sitting with his fastball around 80, 81, maybe 82 miles an hour, but his numbers last year were off the charts. His ERA was a .83. He went 8-0 on a team that went all the way to the section final. He won both playoff games, including a semifinal win over North Rockland, where he absolutely shut them down. And in about 60 innings, he only issued one walk. So that, that's pinpoint control. So, Is it all control? Is it changing speeds? Because he certainly isn't like blowing guys away with a low 80s fastball. Oh, no, yeah, it's definitely changing speeds. It's mixing his pitch as well. It's locating. His location, actually, when I saw him on Monday against Fox Lane, wasn't quite as good as I saw it at times last year. But that I basically tried to hit that balance. You've got a kid like Henry Davis who the scouts are drooling over, and so I felt like for that reason he belonged on there. And then you have a kid like Truman DeVitt, who's definitely not going to Division I college or anything like that, but he is just an outstanding high school player. So I, I kind of tried to strike that balance. Uh, quickly to go through the rest of the list, I added Brett Holtz from Valhalla. To me, he's got one of the sweetest left-handed swings in the section. Big-time power hitter, had five home runs last year, was among the section leaders in that category. Hit about 400. He's going to be perhaps the most dynamic bat in Class B this year. Spencer Lodes is a junior from White Plains. He is a guy that the scouts are definitely interested in because he's big a boy. Yeah, really big boy, big tall right-hander. Uh, I, I don't, I, I haven't heard what he's been clocked at. I talked to his coach and he said, you know, high 80s is probably where he'll sit. And, you know, he's a guy that I think could eventually maybe touch 90 or so. He's got that big projectable body. He also hands the bat, handles the bat pretty well. 
I, uh, I threw Connor Mahoney on there from North Salem, who who made me look smart uh, with his first start of the year. He, he had a no-hitter up until the, there were two outs in the seventh inning. He was one out away from a no-hitter. Ended up with a uh, only allowing the one hit with 12 strikeouts in his opening the other day. And he's the guy that, that did it all for North Salem last year. He's their ace pitcher, and he hit over 400 for a team that went on to win the, the state title in Class C. So I felt like he belonged on there for that reason. I also put Austin Mercado, who's from Stepanak. He didn't get as much attention as a guy like Piccolino from Iona Prep, but Mercado's numbers were all also off the charts last year. And again, that Catholic League is very, very competitive. So if you're dominating there, I felt like you belonged on the list. And that rounds up our, our nine that shine. We also have the next nine, which are a lot of guys that I think you could make a case belong on the first nine. And there's even some that, that weren't in that 18 that I think you could make a strong case for. I know I've been catching a lot of heat from the Mount Vernon people, and, and C.J. Spence I didn't put him on there. He was right on the border. I had him, like, if we were doing another nine to make it a 27 total, he would have been in there. And he came out and threw a no-hitter and hit a home run in his first game this year. So so he already is making me eat my words a little bit. But the, the point is, there's depth, there's quality, and, and I think over the course of the year, especially as we get to the time where we're doing our all-star teams at the end of the year, we'll, we'll, we'll know who belongs by that point. Right, and uh, by that point, we'll actually have played a few more games, which to this point in the season hasn't really happened for a lot of teams yet. Um, 15 practices, 15 official practices are, are the requirement. Opening day was supposed to be last Thursday. It's been cold. It's been rainy. Uh, fields are wet. Uh, a lot of mud out there. Most teams couldn't play until this week. Um, but you did get out to a few games. Uh, Fox Lane beat Mamaronek 11-6 on Monday. What did you see out there that day? Yeah, it, it, to be honest with you, it was not the cleanest baseball game I've ever seen. It was a little sloppy. Both teams had some errors. You know, Mamaronek's infield defense, to be quite frank with you, kind of let them down in that game. Uh, and, and that really opened it up for Fox Lane in the fifth inning to break out with seven runs. It was one of those games where it was like back and forth. I mean, these, these are two of the best teams in Class AA every, every single year. So we expect it to be a real slugfest when they play. Mamaronek kept taking the lead. Fox Lane would come back and tie it. Mamaronek would take the lead back. But eventually Fox Lane really broke it open in that fifth inning. And, you know, even though those are two of the perennial contenders in AA this year, Based on what I saw the other day, I, I don't know if either team feels like it's it's where it would like to be at this point. And that's understandable because, as you mentioned, the weather's been so bad. Teams have been practicing indoors. They haven't had a lot of field time. So you can almost expect some of that sloppy defense and that sort of stuff this early in the year. But when you're talking about double-A baseball right now, i got to tell you, the team that most coaches are raving about in my conversation so far is John J. East Fishkill. Now, they didn't have a great regular season last year, but they came on strong at the end of the year. They went to the semifinals in the playoffs where they lost only by one run to the eventual champion, Ketchum. They brought back the majority of their starters this year. They only had three seniors on the team last year. So they already were looking like a really experienced, well-rounded team. And then they go and add a guy, Johnny Tusio, who I've seen play before. He was at Kennedy back in the day. He's played for the Taconic Rangers with Bob Fletcher. He was at Pine Plains for the last couple of years where he hit over 400 last year, helped them win a sectional title. This is a kid that from the catching position has tremendous pop time, sub two pop time. I'm told off the mound he can throw 90 plus and he can handle the bat well. So John J. East Fishko was already looking stacked and then they add arguably the best position player now in section one to be that rock for them behind the plate. So 
John J. East Fishkill, I think, is probably my slight favorite. I might be moving them up to number one in the rankings this week. I'll decide on that over the weekend. But then after that, I don't really know what to tell you to think in double-A. The, the team that's probably had the best start so far is North Rockland. They graduated almost their entire lineup from last year, so I didn't, I didn't know what to expect out of them. But they come out, they beat the defending ca- uh, champion in Ketchum on Monday, and then yesterday on Wednesday, they beat Mamaronik. So beating Ketchum and Mamaronik, which have played in the previous two section finals, I mean, you couldn't ask for a better way to start your season than that right there. So North Rockland's off to a good start. White Plains is another team that I think is off to a really good start. They're 2-0. and But beyond that, I don't know. I think it's really up for grabs this year, and we're, and we're going to have to see how things play out in the next few weeks. Down in Class A, uh, you were at Harrison Pelham the other day. Harrison with a couple of uh, twin brothers leading the charge from the mound. Yeah, the handlers. And I, and I got a kick out of talking to Matt yesterday because uh, his brother, his twin brother, Mike, started the opener. And when and he threw a great game, eight strikeouts, six shutout innings against Nyack. Matt comes out, throws a complete game shutout against Pelham yesterday. And so I was asking him about, oh, was that like a little, you know, brother competition right there? How is that? And, and he told me that he was actually kind of ticked off because he thought that he was going to be the opening day starter. And when he looked up on the board that announced who was pitching on which day, the Harrison coach, Marco Duraco, had his brother Mike listed as a starter for opening day. So Matt told me he, he, that, you know, that irked him a little bit. And, and he went out there and pitched with some purpose yesterday. His fastball had a little extra zip on it in the late innings. He was getting the curveball over for the most part. He, he looked pretty solid to me. And Harrison's a team that, that's off to a nice start. Uh, they tied Nyack in their first game. But as much as I said it was up for grabs in A, I was at least able to identify, you know, four or five teams that you expect to contend. I don't know if that's the case in A this year. A is, a is just going to be an absolute crazy class to watch. I think once we get to the playoffs, you're going to see upsets. You could see double-digit seeds, road teams winning. You know, John Jay's a defending champion. They opened up with a loss against KO. They graduated a lot, so they're going to go through some growing pains, I think. You know, that power league with Harrison and Pelham and Rye and Byram, they all graduated a lot. I was talking to a few of the coaches about it, and, I mean, the pitching in that league alone, you had George Kirby at Rye. You had um, Dean McCarthy and Stephen Pesce at, at Harrison. You had Frankie Vesuvio and Anthony Russo at Byram. You can go down the list. Eastchester had Greg Satriali. Those were all Division One caliber. Even K- Kirby is a guy that got drafted. Those were outstanding pitchers. I mean, every league game for them for the last few years were these grind-out pitching duels. And now it's like wide open because all those guys are gone. So. Class A this year, I don't know what to tell you. Hen Hud's a team that, that's off to a pretty nice start. They're 2-0. They were the number one seed last year, got upset in the first round, which was a huge surprise to everybody. But they bring back a lot of starters from last year. So Hen Hud's a team that I feel pretty good about. But again, I, I don't know what to tell you in Class A right now. I, I think it is that much of a toss-up. How about Classes B and C, the smaller schools? Yeah, well, uh, North Salem, I wrote about this in the preseason. To me, I think they're the favorite to repeat as state champions right now. That's a lot of pressure to put on them, and I, you know, I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves right now. But North Salem, bringing back a guy like Mahoney, J.B. Healy is their number two starter. Got a lot of playoff innings last year. Their lineup is pretty much intact. 
I believe six of the nine starters in the lineup are back for North Salem. And this is a team that not only won the state championship, but really dominated. I mean, if you look at their scores in their regional and state championship games and state semifinals, those games weren't even close. So North Salem's a team I feel really good about, although watch out for Tuckahoe, because Tuckahoe is another team that I think you know is going to be a, a really good team. They might be the most difficult obstacle for North Salem to get another state championship. B is a little bit less predictable. KO, as I mentioned, had that nice win to start their season over John Jay, but then they came out yesterday and lost to Croton. KO's a defending champion, but Croton's a team that's really been on the, on the rise in the last few years. Coach Eric Rosen over there has done a great job. He's built that program up to now where they're perennial contenders in Class B. Briarcliff is crushing teams right now. They just beat Edgemont 13-2 to yesterday. They're off to a 3-0 start. Briarcliff was in the section final game last year, so you know that they're hungry to get back there and try to you know, take a chance at winning at this time. Valhalla is a team that I like. Albertus Magnus is a team that I like. So I, I think I feel pretty good about the top five or six right now in Class B, and it should be pretty competitive with those teams. And then uh, finally, before we go, um, tip of the cap to Dom Ciceri, the longtime East Chester coach, passed away uh, this week. He's had uh, pancreatic cancer, um, as a few people knew, but he kind of hoped to keep on coaching. Um, you know, 75 years old, going into his 53rd season as the Eagles head coach, um, all-time public school wins leader. Yeah, I, I mean, you really can't say enough about Dom. It, it, it was heartbreaking. It, it was amazing, though, to see this week how the entire Section 1 baseball community came together. I mean, I was talking to people that were at the wake, that were at the candlelit uh, vigil on Monday. I saw a lot of people yesterday at the funeral. I mean, it seems like almost everybody who coaches in Section 1, who, who's played in Section 1, I saw parents that, that don't even have kids at Eastchester, parents from opposing schools, uh, Mamaronic, New Rochelle, all these other schools showing up just to pay their respects. I mean, there's a lot of coaches around that, that are really, really well-respected, but you'll always find a few detractors, a few people that might not like them for competitive reasons or whatever. When it came to Dom, I don't think you could find anybody who would ever speak an ill word about this man. I didn't know him as long as most people did. I've only gotten to know him in the last six or seven years since I started covering baseball in this area. But I can tell you, I mean, the way that we hit it off right away and, and the way that he was just, you know, welcomed me to the beat with open arms and was always so, so generous with his time. I mean, I could call him almost any time of the day or if I showed up at their field, he was always so gracious, such a kind-hearted, humble man. I, I mean, you would feel the warmth when you were in his presence. We, we, from the moment we met, I mean, we realized pretty quickly, my last name, Mercagliano, he realized that he had gone to grade school with my Uncle Frank when they both grew up in Pelham, and he would tell me stories about them throwing baseballs at beehives and all this crazy stuff that they used to do. And even though they hadn't seen each other in, I think, over 50 years, my, my Uncle Frank spends most of his time in Florida, even though they hadn't seen each other in so long, every time I would see Dom, how's Uncle Frank doing? Please tell him I say hello. And he, he would remember these minute little details from their childhood that just amazed me all the time. We also realized that on my mom's side of the family, I have some Ciceries myself. So I, I don't know if we were directly related. We had tried to figure it out a few times, but, but I do know that there's some Ciceries in my family, so we would always joke around that we were, we were related. And we love to talk about food. I mean, that man loved to eat. He would, I, I wrote in my column last year, I had a little fun with it. 
he would always be pulling me during the side vin. What are you having for dinner tonight? Oh, I got to tell you about this dish, Maron. You wouldn't believe it and knock your socks off, all this stuff. It was, it was just that kind of man who when you were around him, you felt like you were around family. You felt like you were in the presence of somebody who genuinely cared about how well you were doing, your well-being, if there was anything bad going on. I mean, he would call me out of nowhere just to give me a random compliment on a story that I wrote. I mean, how many, how many people are, are, are doing things like that? you know, that are working in the Section 1 community. So really, really, really just one of the nicest guys you'll ever meet. And, and one of my favorite stories that, that I tell, one of the first experiences I ever had with Dom was, you know, I was a young reporter. I was probably 23, 24 at the time. And I was covering a game with Eastchester and Tuckahoe at the Parkway Oval in Tuckahoe. And Eastchester absolutely annihilated them. I mean, I probably shouldn't have even gone to that game. It wasn't close. It was like double-digit score or whatever. They, they gonged them in the first or second inning. So you would think that after a game like that, you're just going to shake hands, get on the bus, go home. I mean, there's not really much encouraging words you can say to a team that you just beat by 15 runs or whatever it was. But the field had pretty much cleared out. The, the people that were watching were gone. Pretty much the whole Eastchester team was on the bus waiting and out of the corner of my eye, I noticed that the Dom is talking to the Tuckahoe pitcher who just got shelled and showing him different grips on the ball, going over the delivery, and you could see they were talking mechanics. And, and at the end, Dom shook his hand for, it seemed like a couple minutes, and you could, it was you know pointing to his chest, and you could tell was really trying to uplift this kid and keep his head up and, and teach him and make him feel like, hey, you know, if you do the, if you make these a couple little adjustments, I, I think you can be a quality pitcher. I think you can have some success. Keep your head up, kid. That sort of thing. And to see the coach of an opposing team have his entire team waiting on the bus so that he could spend extra time with this pitcher who his team just scored however many runs off of, I mean, to me, that was just like a heartwarming moment. And, and in that moment right there, I, I knew the character of the man and I knew why I had always heard so many great things about this guy because he 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 didn't have an ego. He he didn't care about, you know, oh, he wanted to be acknowledged for having the most wins or he wanted to be acknowledged for being around for this long. It was never like that with Dom. I mean, this man genuinely did not want any accolades. He didn't want any extra attention. He just wanted to do the right thing for not only the kids on his team, but but pretty much anybody he ever met. And I think that that's why hundreds, maybe a thousand plus people over the course of these last few days have sent in notes, have emailed us, showed up at the wake, showed up at the funeral, because this is a truly, truly a man whose impact will live on for a very, very long time. And in that anecdote, it speaks to the things that he truly valued, education and sportsmanship. And those are two things that, you know, sometimes we focus on the wrong things in sports, but he clearly had the focus on the right things. Yeah, and I would just also like to say, you know, we, we definitely offer our sincerest condolences to his family. I know the whole East Chester community is hurting right now. I know the whole Section 1 baseball community is hurting right now. But, you know, Dom would have wanted everybody to play on. Dom would have wanted you guys to enjoy the season. So let's do that with his spirit in mind. You know, let's play hard. Let's have fun. And let's definitely keep him in mind while we're doing all that. Absolutely. Until next week, I'm Life Skodnik. I'm Vince McCogliano. This is the Low Hud Sports Podcast.